there are themes here in terms of what people think of when they think of entrepreneurship, entrepreneurial education, and who gets to be an entrepreneur. And I think it is um, one of my favorite things is to reframe that, to tell a different story, not just of how entrepreneurship can be used for, you know, for good, for others, for community betterment, but an entirely different process where, you know, you're not just looking for the solution to your problem, but we're looking for solutions to broader problems. You're listening. You're listening to. You're listening to. You're listening to the Learning Futures. The podcast. Learning Futures. The podcast. Learning Futures podcast. You're listening to the Learning Futures podcast. Welcome to the Learning Futures podcast. I'm your host Ron Baghetto. On this show, we explore big ideas, key issues, and questions facing education now and into the future moving from what currently is to what could and should be, including considering serendipities and setbacks along the way. I'm honored today to be joined by Elise Burden. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, Ron. Thanks so much for having me. My name is, you just said it, Elise Burden. I am the co-founder and executive director of Real World Scholars, uh, which is a nonprofit organization. Uh, We work all over the country. We're based here in San Diego, but we have the privilege of supporting classrooms around the country as they integrate entrepreneurial learning into into the core of their of their classroom into their curriculum and so uh that is what i spend my days and nights doing uh i wish one day hopefully it's just the days and not the nights as well but uh we've done this work for the last seven years or so so i'm excited to kind of dig in excellent well this is the learning futures podcast but i think before we can talk about the future it's important to kind of reflect on the past and i think our listeners would be interested elise to hear a little bit about your journey so how did you arrive at where you are working in with real world scholars and what has been kind of your journey along the way? Yeah, I think it's a good question. Um, a great question. So much of the work that we do with young people is really informed by the work we do as adults, <laughs> the learning that we're engaging in kind of as a team, as individuals. And so I kind of came to this work, not as an educator, I've never been a classroom educator, but as a learner and as an entrepreneur. And I met my co-founder back in 2013, and he had some dollars, and he was really passionate about the entrepreneurial process and what that could look like and mean for young people. He had had a, you know, really uh, an empowering kind of experience finding his own skill set and voice doing, you know, selling encyclopedias door to door. I'd had some similar experiences in college, high school and college where, you know, I was a fine classroom student. And also the things that really got me excited and the things that, you know, made me work through the night were things that happened outside of the classroom. And there were places where I could create and build and have these wild, you know, ideas. And so, we both were kind of drawn to this idea around entrepreneurship as this vehicle for something much larger. And so that was back in 2013. And we had this opportunity to give classrooms money to start student-run businesses. That was the idea. And uh, we tried that and it actually didn't work. We put out a press release and said, we have a quarter million dollars to give away for small businesses, you know, for, for students who want to start small businesses in the classroom. And we got two phone calls, both of which were like, what are you talking about? Uh, This sounds wild. And it really occurred to us that while there was actually a lot of interest, we'd had conversations with lots of teachers around the excitement, like around the entrepreneurial process ourselves, we knew what this could look like. Uh, There was really this missing piece around how this would work for teachers in a classroom setting. And so what's really interesting for me is, you know, I kind of, if I'm honest, I fell into this work. Uh, I met my co-founder kind of in passing. I was expecting to be in San Diego for three months before I moved abroad again, because my background is in nonprofits um, and in international development. 
or at least it was before this. And I was planning to keep moving, but suddenly I had this thing to sink my teeth into, this problem that I wanted to solve. And it was really about young people having the opportunity to figure out what excited them, what would keep them up through the night, you know, and so and what the teachers need to make that kind of thing happen in the classroom. And so fast forward a couple of years and, you know, thousands of conversations with educators and school leaders later, we kind of landed on this program called EdCorps um, that allowed any classroom anywhere to run an e-commerce business. And so it's really a, an interesting journey. We now have worked with um, maybe over 550-ish, um, I say over because I don't remember the exact numeral after that, but about 550 student-run businesses. And as we walk individual teachers and students through this process of like bringing their ideas to life and kind of using this as a learning process, I'm also doing that. You know, I'm like, I am that, that founder who was Googling, you know, six years ago, how to build a website. Like what, what is the uh, public charity legal status? You know, the amount of things that I've kind of learned on the fly through this process um, has really mirrored a lot of things we ask our students to do. And so today I, I kind of sit here humbly, not a, I, I, maybe more, a bit more experience and some more insights from our community uh, but still a learner and learning both from our students and from our, the, the amazing community of educators that we work with that have really shown us what this looks like in the classroom. Yeah, that's so interesting. I think it's such a fresh and kind of unexpected idea. I know from my own experience and, and working with a lot of educators that you don't see much by way of even student-led projects, let alone student-led companies or nonprofits that they want to develop, taking their, their ideas out into the world and making a difference. And so I think it would be really interesting for our listeners to hear a little bit more about some examples and maybe how do you see this addressing or what pressing educational questions or issues do you see this kind of work addressing in this place called school where you typically don't see kids um, having opportunities to generate their own ideas, let alone push those out into the world. So maybe you could give us a, some examples of the kinds of projects you've seen developed by students and teachers and what you see as kind of the need and benefit of doing so. It's both my favorite question and my least favorite question, Ron, because with 550 classrooms, I suddenly have this like mad dash, like, oh gosh, pick pick a good one because <laughs> there's so many. There's so many. Um, and I think the thing that is most exciting to me about the entrepreneurial process is, uh, you know, for us, I, I kind of cringe a little bit when we kind of get described in this like entrepreneurial education lane, because in reality, what we've seen is that the entrepreneurial learning process can sit at the core of any classroom, right? This isn't just entrepreneurial education for young people who want to go on and start businesses. It, it, it can be used to bring any types of passion, conviction, idea to life. And so, you know, we've seen, I'll, I'll kind of briefly go through a few and maybe I'll land on one. It'll be, we won't know until I land, but we've seen like classes, you know, one that comes to mind is a class outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee. Um, it was an ag science class. They worked with local, um, you know, and actually it's one of the coolest schools I've ever been to because it's an outdoor school and they have access to, I think, 10 miles of um, public like hiking land behind their school that is just designated for them. And so, so much of their school day happens outdoors. And uh, so these students are, are keenly aware of their environment, of what this like, you know, the, the local ecosystem and they worked with the Tennessee park rangers as they were having conversations around like, you know, what was climate change as a whole, what was happening in their backyard. And they discovered that there was a particular type of bat that was um, a keystone species and it was waking up early from hibernation. Well, 
for lots of reasons, that was a problem. And as they, you know, kind of chipped away, at like, why, 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 why? They figured out that there was a particular type of invasive moss that was making these bats wake up early. And there was this ripple effect. And, you know, you backtrack that a little bit and they end up making, or, you know, you kind of, excuse me, backwards design that. And they end up making bat boxes that they maybe, uh, they sold, I think, about a dozen of them to folks in the community. And I think from the outside looking in, that can look like a, a, a fun twist on a bird box. But in reality, there was this huge project behind this where students were actually really riled up about this challenge in their community. They built something that addressed it and they convinced other folks not just to buy that bat box, but to put it on their property to be a part of a solution that was re- that they all had kind of a vested interest in, which was this keystone species in their in you know in their uh, their backyard. And so I think we've seen you know individual students. You know, we had one student who was maybe second or third grade. I can't remember now. She's up in uh, P- Pittsburgh and had a, a cousin who had cancer and she asked her teacher to help her sew a, a stuffed animal for her. And that spawned a whole business where they they sold stuffies, they called them. The business was called Heroes with Heart and each stuffed animal had a different theme and had a cape and every one that you purchased sent a stuffed animal to a, a child in the Pittsburgh Children's Hospital. And that third grade student ended up teaching all of her class how to hand sew these stuffed animals. And they built an entire business around it. They got a ton of press, they got a ton of attention, like partnerships. And you can only imagine from like a student's perspective, what that feels like to now have their idea, their work, not be celebrated just within the confines of a school, but to have it reach far beyond, right? To the, to the kids that they don't even know who are in the hospital or to the customer who's buying it from all the way across the country. And that's kind of what we've seen is like a lot of these projects start to get legs and, and folks are excited about it because they haven't seen things like this before or they do and then they're just, there's not an easy way for the community to get involved. And I think what's really cool about the business is because it's not, the confines of a business don't typically, they're, they're not the, the usual um, framework for a classroom. And so teachers and students alike have to ask, like, what else could this look like? Who else could be involved? And then students start kind of reaching beyond the classroom, beyond the, uh, the, the folks in the classroom, beyond the activities that are traditional in the classroom. You know, we have kids who are cold calling, you know, Slack uh, we actually had a class that partnered with Slack, you know, and, and they're reaching out to these big companies saying, hey, we have an idea and we think you should listen. And I think it just totally changes the dynamic when young people are, are given the opportunity to say, what do you care about? What makes you angry or excited? And what do you want to do about it? And we'll give you the space and grace and resources and partnership to make that happen. I think it's, it kind of flops the classroom dynamic on its head. And one of the things that, you know, to, to your point around why is this most relevant right now? You know, I've got two kids at home and we work with this, you know, pretty substantive community. And I think there has been, it has never been more apparent to me that like engagement is no longer like a, like a secondary thing to consider. You know, I think oftentimes we're thinking about like the nuts and bolts, but right now what we're hearing and what I'm also seeing in my own home is that if kids don't want to show up, they're not going to show up. There's no way, you know, and I know a lot of classrooms are making it back um, in physical spaces, but we hear we hear from from teachers a lot that they're having a tough time getting kids in the room. And while there's a lot of other factors that can keep young people from being in their online classes, I think it's never been more important to give them something interesting that they want to be here for. Because if they if if it's not, if this doesn't meet them where they're at to get them where they think they want to go, there's a really good chance we're going to miss them. And they have less incentive than ever to kind of join the, the, the learning community, the classroom experience, et cetera, without a reason, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's so fascinating. And as a creativity researcher, I think it really illustrates some of the principles that I and my colleagues have been thinking about of how do we, you know, 
provide opportunities for student voice and to push their learning out beyond the walls of the classroom and make a contribution. And, and I think, you know, when um, some educators hear the word entrepreneurial, and I, I must admit that I've even had this kind of initial reaction. It's like, oh, is this just like about teaching kids how to make money? You know, <laughs> Which is not, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing to teach um, young people how to become entrepreneurs, but it's just something that often isn't talked about in school. And it just becomes almost like put in this assumed space of this is just kind of self-serving work, but just even in the couple projects you illustrated, I think it highlights that, you know, these are really projects driven out of compassion, a larger social conscience, you know, thinking about the environment, really trying to make a difference. So I'd be interested to hear some of your thoughts. Have you come up against that tension of where people might be a little hesitant because they feel like it's just this self-serving, let's make as much money as possible versus let's make a, a positive contribution in the world and do so with a conscience. Absolutely. I mean, I think there is a piece of it that is like, okay, so this is, you know, uh, this is just about money. This is a business education program. I think there is a deeper critique, which is also kind of valid that is like, well, this is a space that has not been because it is obsessed with money and, and prestige in this way. It has not been a space that has been that inviting for folks who look maybe out, who, who look a little bit different or who come from different backgrounds. You know, there's a very specific idea of entrepreneurial education and who an entrepreneur is. Right. And if you ask, uh, and we've done this, we have not in some time, but you know, if you, we've asked young people to draw, uh, what they think of when they think of a, an entrepreneur and a vast majority of the time they're drawing a man. Uh, if you ask them to name an entrepreneur, there's a really good chance you're either going to hear Mark Zuckerberg or Bill Gates, right? There are themes here in terms of what people think of when they think of entrepreneurship, entrepreneurial education, and who gets to be an entrepreneur. And I think it is um, one of my favorite things is to reframe that, to tell a different story, not just of how entrepreneurship can be used for, you know, for good, for others, for community betterment, but an entirely different process where, you know, you're not just looking for... Um, the, the solution to your problem, but we're looking for solutions to broader problems. And I think the critique is valid or, you know, the kind of, I think the folks and their um, misgivings, the hesitancy is, it makes a lot of sense given where we have come from. And also I think when you see just one young person make a thing and then share that thing with a potential customer and then have that customer buy that thing, there is a wild thing that happens when a young person sees something that they have created um, traded for real value. One of our my favorite student quotes was, I asked um, in an interview, kind of exit survey, this is when we did like really um, close up pilots and I was in the classroom a lot. You know, I asked, how did running a business change your classroom experience? And he said, well, before I didn't give a shit about my work, but now that people are paying me a lot of money for it, I guess I have to try hard. And it, I wish I could put it on our website. Uh, because the reality is, I think there is this thing that happens when it's not just for your parent, it's not just for your teacher, it's not for this insular school world, which you may or may not be excited by or feel a sense of belonging in. It's for someone else who actually values what you're bringing to the table. And, um, you know, while there's technically money there, I think there is something deeper that happens where then a young person has that light bulb that says, oh, my work matters oh, I can create value for the people around me. They're not just humoring me by saying that was a really nice project, you know? And so uh, I, I think there's something that's a part of that process that we see and feel and the learning that can come from that, especially when applied and done in, you know, in teams that really keeps us from um, locking in too much to this idea that it is a lone wolf's journey 
And it is one that is uh, kind of angled towards the making of money and capital. But I think it is one that's really important to talk about. And we, I mean, sat down as a team last summer and said, where are the blind spots? You know, we've always talked about entrepreneurship and with a broader lens. But if we haven't been explicit, like where are the places where we have contributed to this idea that that the point here is making money, you know, or, or the point here, like those who make the most money have won the most points, you know, like where, where have we kind of contributed to that narrative and how do we need to continue to push it beyond that? Yeah, I love how this work is kind of disruptive in disrupting assumptions about who gets to be an entrepreneur, you know, what that looks like and what that work looks like. And then you know, disrupts some biases and, and creates a space where um, all students are invited to share their ideas and, and create value and, and do quality work. And I'm just wondering, I'd like to hear a little bit more about, you know, what some of the things that this work has kind of built or put into place to kind of support that kind of broader vision of it's not just about, you know, making as much money as fast as possible and who cares what the fallout is. I mean, one of the the initiatives here at ASU is called principled innovation. And one way to kind of think about that is we're really kind of focused on innovation here at ASU, but not just innovation for innovation's sake. So really thinking through those, those difficult and kind of wicked challenges of, okay, what are the potential unintended consequences? Can we anticipate those? Can we make sure that the work is not only beneficial in, in the immediate moment, but that it's going to kind of benefit in a lasting way. And if there are unintended consequences, how can we kind of anticipate and address those proactively or um, as needed? So how um, has this work kind of brought forth that kind of broader vision of let's do this kind of work in more of a principled way and think about intended and unintended consequences? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. And so much of my own learning around this has been both, you know, in watching our classes go through this process, but also, again, kind of having my own entrepreneurial experience. And while I don't know if we have, I wish I had like, you know, like an acronym or a framework, but I think the reality is, is that we have had to kind of just keep coming back to the humanity in it all, right? And there are lots of different ways that we do that. But, you know, it's it's about like dropping in, trying to have as honest of conversations as possible and really creating space for honest conversations, you know, and, and I think we still probably have a lot of work to do on this, but both, you know, within our team telling, you know, kind of showcasing our humanity is like what this work is looking like and within our community. and. There's oftentimes, I think, a real, uh, there's a lot of discussion around like celebrating failure. Uh, And I think that's fine and also can be really challenging when you're in the midst of failure because it's hard to celebrate failure until you're kind of on the other side of it and you know it's not permanent. And the reality for us is that like, you know, the entrepreneurial process is full of failure. It's full of, but, but it's, I don't really think of it as failure, right? I think of it as iteration. I think of it as learning, experimentation. And so when some of these setbacks, you know, or some of these um, kind of challenges I can think of both on behalf of our community and my own was this feeling of like, okay, we're building something, we're innovating, and you want to keep always moving forward. But that's not really how learning works. That's not really how building works, right? And so this being more open to the fact that like some days we're going to kill it. Some days we're going to be so productive. We're going to have amazing ideas. We're going to connect the dots perfectly. And some days we're not. And that's going to be okay too. And this part of that dispelling of that entrepreneurial story, the one we were just talking about, was kind of letting ourselves off the hook and letting and encouraging teachers to let themselves off the hook of this like rise and grind culture, this like 
you know, you, you're going to give it your all over and over and over again because for this greater good. And I think that's actually one of the dangers of the entrepreneurial process and story, you know, when there isn't a nine to five, a preset end time, you know, or, or, or a destination that you are sure that you're, um, you know, you're going, which I think is a big part of the entrepreneurial process, right? It's like, we really don't know where we're going. When that destination isn't predefined, it can make for a really long journey and it's hard to know. And we've had a lot of teachers kind of come to us with conversations of burnout because it's like, well, is this twist and turn too much? Is this the last one? Am I supposed to be doing this on the weekends with my kids too? Like, you know, we've seen classes kind of explode with excitement and kids who want to do all of these, you know, kind of separate and additional projects. And then the teacher is calling like kind of wide eyed, like this is amazing. I'm pretty tired though. And, you know, and I've got kids too. And, and again, this was some of the same experiences we were having on our own team around like, you can go kind of forever, but at what cost? And I think it's a really important um, piece of the puzzle when it comes to sustainability and longevity is that, you know, the entrepreneur's journey, both internally as an organization and for our own kids and, and teachers is not, it's not about like the quick wins. It is a longer story. And we have to be honest about each of those individual pages of the story, the days that aren't so great, that aren't super innovative, that aren't shiny and sparkly and feel good so that we can like normalize that and then be more self-aware so that we don't go over the edge. Um, and I think that's true for our teachers who have been doing amazing work. I think it's too true for students. Um, you know, as my own, I, I've had my own kind of process of burnout and, you know, and part of it has been like, being more honest with myself about what I can reasonably take on. And so, you know, I think it's been interesting for me because this story starts at the very top with uh, like our leadership and how we've run our organization. And, and, um, and we're constantly now asking how do we kind of um, reinforce these learnings, these convictions, these awarenesses around what healthy, uh, like a healthy way forward, a more sustainable way forward, one that kind of um, takes into account our whole humanity, our whole well-being as learners, all of us, you know, what does that look like in both as a team and as a program? Yeah, I think that's such an important message of, you know, self-care and honesty and balance. Um, and it's something that I think our students experience in school right now, without the addition of, you know, taking on a project that's really exciting to them and, and really can consume all their time and energy and perhaps lead to burnout or other kinds of issues. And so I think that's really um, an important message that it's coming through the organization and that that's something that's being discussed in an honest way with educators and young people. And so I think that kind of takes us towards the future. Um, this is the Learning Futures podcast. So we do have a question where we try to anticipate the future and invite you to kind of anticipate that along the lines of the work you're doing. So Elise, if you were to imagine some possible futures, so we're going to say that in the plural, kind of the good, the bad, and the beautiful for the work that you're doing, can you kind of explore some of those with us? What would be a good future for this work? What do you see as a potentially problematic or bad future for this work? And most importantly, what do you see as the kind of beautiful future for this work? I love I love that framing. I think a good future. And like when you say good, I'm thinking like uh, if and I, and I should preface this with like, I don't really care about grades that much. And I tell my kids this, but I'm thinking good is like a B grade, you know, like it's all right. Uh, we could do better. So I think a good version of this would be, um, you know, having more opportunities for young people to explore as co-creators, right? Like, and, and, and that probably will be more part of my beautiful future as well. But, you know, 
we work with classes, kind of schools that run the gamut of, you know, folks who've like never heard of project-based learning to like schools that don't even exist in a school, right? Like there's so many different types of schools that we work with that are on their own kind of uh, evolution journey. Um, and I think it's possible for, like we've just seen it work in a lot of different places, right? And so the good, the hopeful is that we can work with more classes and, and not just us, but you know, we, I see real world scholars as a part of a broader tidal wave of folks, organizations, people, thought leaders, educators who are trying to create different opportunities, different types of learning environments within a given structure. Now, as an individual person, like I'm a bit more of an anarchist and I'd like to burn the structure down altogether and start anew, whatever that beautiful future looks like, I think is one where um, young people and all of the folks who are invested in their learning can come together as equal stakeholders to determine what the now looks like as well as the future. You know, I think young people need so much more space and grace to do the work that they want to do and to, you know, to figure things out on their own. I oftentimes am left wondering why do we get to determine what is best for their future? Why do we get to determine what is what will make them kind of quote unquote future ready or ready for the future? You know, and so my beautiful, my, like the vision of the most beautiful future for me is one where like we get to come together as like equals where everyone's insights and uh, and experiences are equally valued. Um, and then we can kind of start afresh um, and figure out what does that look like? My concern, the bad to me, you know, I think there's probably um, some consensus amongst your guests that the bad is like a, a, the status quo. And I, and I would probably agree with that. I would add that like, there's a lot of, you know, reform and, and wolf in sheep's clothing kind of stuff happening. And I love Ken Robinson and one of his books, I think it's Creative Schools, kind of talks about, you know, the revolution needing to um, rethink what counts as school and, uh, where school takes place. And my concern is that we will continue to have school in its most traditional definition and we will change what happens inside of those schools and we will call it innovation. We will, we will push STEM and, you know, like technology, we will tell students what they need to do to be future ready. And it will be a continuation of the exact same dynamic where we don't take the time to get to know the young people in front of us before prescribing to them what they need to do today and who they need to be tomorrow. Um, I think it's soul sucking. And as a, you know, and as an individual person and now as a parent watching that happen um, up close is, uh, I think it's the biggest miss. And I just don't care so much about reading, writing and arithmetic if you lose your soul along the way, you know? And so um, my concern is that we keep kind of dealing with faceless students and calling it innovation when we never uh, actually reorient ourselves to being more student centered and valuing their voices. Um, and I think, again, it just requires that consistent honesty check-in. Are we actually living up to our values or have we kind of found a new set of technology or a new platform or a new set of buzzwords or, new, you know, whatever to make us feel better about a continuation of the work that keeps adults in charge and young people as recipients? Well, it certainly sounds like you're working on a more promising alternative to that. So I would like to invite you to share with our listeners where they can learn more about this work and also get involved in it. Yeah, so you can check out our website it is www.realworldscholars.org. And there are lots of ways that folks can get involved. If you're a classroom educator, uh, you can apply to start a business in your classroom. We work in almost all 50 states. Sorry, Illinois, your tax laws are 
hard. But we work in almost all 50 states, K, to, K through 12. And so we had in both in school and after school programs. And so if you're an educator, you work with young people and you would like to integrate some sort of entrepreneurial experience into your um, learning environment, you can check us out there. We also have opportunities for community members to kind of be mentors, to work alongside classes for folks, you know, in various organizations to kind of lend their skill sets, talents, treasures, et cetera. And so there are lots of ways folks can get involved. We have a really awesome community. So come on down. So on your materials or websites, is there a place where this gets showcased where some of the teachers projects and, and student work and companies and things they've developed is showcased so people can get inspired and learn more about that as well? Yeah, there's examples all over the website. So I think on the homepage, there's probably I think at the very top, there's like a link out to our end of year report, which probably has a dozen stories of like, this is, you know, how it worked in this classroom, kind of some of the learning outcomes. Uh, we have various community specific pages. Like we work with specific funders, both regionally and kind of topically. So we have a funder for skilled trades and we work with how we have a whole cohort of skilled trades classrooms running businesses. And you can kind of go learn around what that program looks like or what that piece of the initiative looks like and examples from those classrooms, et cetera. Um, and then once folks start to work with us, we have just lots and lots of examples, lots of playbooks and templates and things that support them integrating this into the classroom. Excellent. All right. Well, we'll drop that information in the show notes. Thank you so much, Elise, for joining us. It's a really exciting project and endeavor that you're engaged in. And um, I'm looking forward to learning more about it, as I'm sure many of our listeners are as well. And so that's a wrap. Thank you for listening to the Learning Futures Podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information and see you next time. The Learning Futures Podcast is produced at Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College at Arizona State University. Executive producers are Dr. Sean Leahy and Claire Gilbert. The show is produced by Dr. Clarine Collins and Karina Munoz-Baltazar. Audio production provided by Claire Gilbert. <laughs>